0: All right. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Thanks for being here uh, this morning. He is risen. Risen indeed. Yes, we're glad you're here. Lots and lots of new faces. I uh, want to mention that um, uh, after the service, uh, the Connect Desk is right back there. Allison Serafino is always there. She'd love to answer any questions you might have, um, connect you in any way that she can. But uh, Cody and I will be heading back there uh, as quickly as we can after the service as well, if you have any questions for us. Also during communion, you'll have a chance to ask questions and, and pray with people who will be uh, in the wings. I will tell you, that song always moves me. That, it, that last song we did, it's, uh, it's a little challenging to get composed and then try to add value after that. But uh, um, maybe this will help. Uh, I was given an announcement. We're starting a free parenting class this week at Redemption Arcadia. Uh, it's on Wednesday nights, the next six weeks, Be in here from 6 till 7.30. Uh, this is obviously great for parents. If you have kids anywhere from infancy to um, teenagers, it will be really helpful to you. Uh, if you. If you're planning on having kids, if you think someday there's a possibility you will have kids. If you have friends that are children and they're annoying, this could be very helpful for you as well. You could maybe help counsel them in some way, shape, or form. You don't need to be a Christian to come to this. You don't need to be a part of our church. Um, And and in fact, it would be a great way to just come and meet other parents. Uh, It will not be 90 minutes of lecture. It's going to be some videos and some discussion and stuff like that. Uh, If you would like a little bit more information on it and uh, want to RSVP. We're assuming that the people who are gonna come are gonna have children and you'll need childcare so we need to make sure we set up childcare and we do that based on the RSVP so you can go to our website. It's redemptionaz.com. That's our website. Uh, And then you pick the Arcadia Congregation. If you're new and you don't know anything about Redemption Church, we're one church with 10 congregations, and we're the Arcadia Congregation. Uh, If you have more questions about that, uh, you can track down Tyler James. He's our family pastor. He's going to be doing the Easter egg hunt, which is not for most of you, but for your children after this service. And uh, he can answer questions, but also you can uh, email him. So you can find his email on our website uh, as well, so anything you need to know about that, let us know. Uh, we're, it's Easter. I mean, we're, we're going to talk about the the crucifixion and the resurrection of of Jesus. That's what we talk about every Easter. But um, there's also a guy in the Bible, pretty pretty prominent guy in the New Testament, named Peter. Um, he's a fascinating guy. Um, Paul is is maybe the most well known uh, non Jesus person in the New Testament. Uh, Peter's a very close second. And while Paul's life has an interesting story, narrative to it, uh, Peter's, I think, is, is vastly more interesting. It just Because he was involved during the Gospels. We don't meet Paul until uh, the book of Acts. Peter is all over the four Gospels, and then he's all over the book of Acts. And in fact, he's the primary human character in the book of Acts for the first 12 uh, or so chapters of the book of Acts. And one of the reasons I like Peter so much ...is that he's just an everyday person. He's a, he's, a, he's a you and I kind of person. He has character traits and personality quirks and flaws... ...and, and um, uh, some, some things that are wonderful. I admire his passion. I admire his loyalty. I admire his willingness to just jump into anything... Uh, so he has some very good characteristics, but those good characteristics also come with kind of a, a downside as well. He has a tendency to just jump in before he knows what's going on, and and uh, he's just an interesting guy. Um, there's there's all of his characteristics. There's a there's a little bit of of Peter that resides in all of us, and and that's why it's so easy to connect with him. So what we're going to do is we're going to follow uh, the 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 record of the. Of the Easter story, the crucifixion and the resurrection, but we're going to do so through Peter's eyes. And, and certainly, the star of the show, the Messiah, is Jesus. He's the most important person. But viewing this through the eyes of Peter, I think, is going to help us um, make some connections to our own lives that maybe we hadn't uh, considered before. We're going to do that primarily in the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 22, the last part of Luke 22, the beginning of Luke 24, and then we're actually going to end by going to Psalm uh, 16. So let's get started. Here you go Luke 22, starting in verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them, and he drew near Jesus to kiss him. So Judas was actually selected by Jesus to be a part of his his group, a part of his yoke, his rabbi's yoke, uh, one of the 12. He was an apostle, he was a disciple, but he was also the one who would eventually betray Jesus. And Jesus, of course, predicted that this would happen just a few hours uh, earlier before this. And, and, and Judas came to betray Jesus, and the way he betrayed him was he brought the entire Jewish ruling council with him along with their guard and the elders and, and everybody. So they, had, they also had people there with weapons to protect the Jewish ruling council and to uh, take Jesus forcibly if they had to. And Judas had a signal set up with, with them. Uh, he said, look, just to make sure we get the right guy, I'm going to walk up to my rabbi and I'm going to give him a, a kiss. Uh, so that you know who it is. This is a very common thing that you would you would greet your rabbi by kissing him. So, uh, but Jesus takes this common greeting and, and realizes what Judas is doing with him, and, and he has a rebuke for Judas uh, in, the, in the moment. In verse 48, he says, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? This common kiss that is supposed to be a sign of respect and adoration for your rabbi. You're going to use it now to betray me and send me to my death. And when those who were around Jesus, saw what would follow. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So there were some disciples there, Peter included, who saw what, what was about to happen, and they said, do we, to, do we need to pull out our swords and stand up and defend you? But one of those disciples didn't wait for an answer. He, he didn't care. He just jumped right in, and this would be Peter. He Yanked out his sword before Jesus had even answered, and he went over and he cut somebody's ear off. He said, I am going to stand my ground for my rabbi. I am loyal to my rabbi. And not just my rabbi, but I understand this rabbi is going to be the savior of God's people, the Messiah that that has been talked about in the Hebrew Bible for centuries. I'm, I'm going to stand up for him and protect him. In John's gospel, he is named by name. It's Peter who cuts off the ear of Malchus. But also in John's gospel, uh, the way John records it is there was never even any discussion. The minute they came ready to take Jesus, Peter jumped up and did this. There wasn't even time for anybody to register what would happen. Peter was always ready for a fight. So they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, this would be Peter, struck the servant of the high priest, Malchus, and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched Malchus's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you. Day after day, in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Sounds like Jesus is talking a little bit of trash there. Maybe he is. He's saying, look, I I haven't been hiding from you. I've been going into the temple every single day and teaching the people, why didn't you come to me then, uh, during daylight, in front of everybody, and take me away? And the reason is because they knew the popularity of Jesus, it would make it very dangerous to try and and um, execute the arrest of Jesus at that point. So they had to come over. They had to come under the cover of darkness, and that again may have been also why they knew who Jesus was. Why Judas needed to go and kiss Jesus because it was dark and they wanted to make sure they got the right person. But they knew that if they came during the day in the temple, there could be a revolt, there could be a riot, and they didn't want that. So they had to do it in a very uh, a very covert way. And one of the things we need to understand about what's going on here is the context. Less than a week earlier, Jesus had finally arrived at Jerusalem, and he had rode into Jerusalem as a conquering hero, a victorious king, as the Messiah and the Savior who was going to do what the Jewish people had wanted. For years, for decades, even for centuries. The Jews in Jerusalem and all of Judea, all of Israel really, at this time they were an occupied people under the oppressive thumb of the Roman government. They had Roman governors over them and they hated that. They were God's people. They needed to be sovereign. They saw the Roman occupation of their land as as nothing really more than just another Babylonian exile, only this time they're in their own land. That They weren't ta- carried away. The Romans had invaded there. And they were looking for a Messiah, a Savior, that they believed that God had promised to them that was going to lead the revolt against the Romans and throw that Roman yoke off of them once and for all. And they thought Jesus was the one. Jesus rode into Jerusalem as that conquering king. The Messiah they'd been looking for, the one that was going to beat back Rome, and they were going to have their sovereignty back. But over the course of that week, they began to hear Jesus' teaching, and they began to realize his teaching didn't line up with their understanding, their paradigm, their worldview of what power was supposed to look like. They believed that power was expressed in this way that they would be able to just physically, militarily, whatever it took, push back the Romans. They didn't understand that Jesus was bringing a different power that looked different than anybody had ever seen before. They didn't understand that. And so now Jesus is teaching these things that they don't like because they don't discern the power in the midst of what Jesus is saying or doing. And now he's starting to disrupt them and mess with their power structures that they had set up even though those power structures were within what what the government was doing. And so they felt like they had to get rid of him. They needed to execute him. They needed to just get him out of there. Well, Peter... Peter, he saw his role in the midst of this as Jesus' enforcer, Jesus's guard, Jesus' protector. And he saw this as a legitimate role. Other rabbis had these people protecting them. The Jewish ruling council certainly had a guard and people that would go out and arrest people and protect the Jewish ruling council. Uh, Peter saw this actually as his... God-given ministry to protect Jesus to any end, and he was ready to do it. He was a loyal guy, and he's a big, strong, tough fisherman. He's not used to losing fights, and he was willing to stand up to anybody. He was Jesus's enforcer. And not only was he just Jesus's enforcer, he was not just protecting his rabbi, but he was protecting the one who was going to throw the yoke of the Roman oppression off of the nation of Israel, off of God's people. This was a big job that Peter had appointed for himself that he believed God was calling him to. And so we go to the next paragraph and we see what happens now that Jesus has rebuked Peter for his seeming loyalty and his willingness to wade into any situation with the sword pulled. So they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. Now that detail we believe, is included by Luke to let us know. J- Peter was right there, ready to jump in, and did jump in at a second's notice, but now he's confused. He's following at a distance. I messed up. I got rebuked. By Je- I thought I did the right thing. I, I got rebuked. Now I'm following at a distance. I don't know if I need to be associated with this guy Jesus anymore. And when they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a servant girl, seeing Peter as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with Jesus. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw Peter and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while Peter was still talking, while the words were still coming out of his mouth, on this third denial, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Uh, Jesus and Peter had had this conversation already. Jesus was telling his disciples, I need to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested, and they're going to execute me. And and Peter and the disciples, led by Peter, said, Peter said, no, no, you're not going to do that. And, and, And Jesus said, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. I have to go and do this. And then Peter said, well, then I'm going to go with you, and I'm going to die with you, probably meaning I am going to die protecting you and keeping you from being executed by these sinful men. That's what I'm going to do. And Jesus looks at him and said, no, that's not what's going to happen. In fact, at some point, you're going to feel like you need to distance me from, yourself, from myself so much that you're going to deny me three times. And we're both going to know that because the minute you deny me the third time, there's going to be a rooster that crows. And in this case, this is the only gospel that, re- that records um, um, Peter and Jesus locking eyes as that rooster crowed. So... Here's what we have. Understand, we have these consecutive chronological paragraphs in Luke, one paragraph after another. In 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 the first paragraph, we have cocky, brave, courageous Peter. The very next paragraph, what do we have? We have Peter the coward. Peter the coward. But is he really? Is he really a coward? Is that what's going on here? He was just he he didn't care if the other disciples came with him on this mission to take on the entire Jewish ruling council guard. He was going to do it. He was going to do it by himself. Was he a coward then? Sounds to me like he was he was brave and courageous and willing to do anything, filled with loyalty. What's really going on here is 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 he a coward at this point? He might be a little bit afraid, but I don't think so how about this now he's confused he's disoriented he also believed that Jesus was going to throw off the yoke of the Romans and in order to do that he was certainly going to have to defy the Jewish ruling council because they weren't going on along with the program either and he's seeing he's seeing for the first time a different expression of power that he's ever seen in in his life before a different expression, a different manifestation manifestation of power that he's never seen before in his life. I think he's confused. He's confused about a power that's rooted in a foundation of humility, suffering, and sacrifice. That doesn't sound very powerful, does it? Humility, sacrifice, and submission. In fact, in in the first century Greco-Roman world around the Mediterranean there, Humility was actually seen as a vice. It was not a virtue. It was a vice. And and it was was such a vice that it was even seen by some people as sin. But not Jesus. not, Not the one and only true God, the Father. Not the Holy Spirit. This is not a vice. This is actually a virtue. And it's where genuine power in the kingdom of God comes from Peter is struggling to understand how there is power in the kingdom of God but it's rooted in sacrifice humility servanthood love compassion and wisdom it's different now that may sound like weakness to a lot of people that's why humility wasn't seen as a virtue but as a vice because humility was seen as a as a weakness that sounds like weakness but it's not it's not weakness but Peter is a confused and disoriented guy who has probably lived his whole life by this idea that might makes right. Might makes right. Peter was a big, strong fisherman, used to winning fights, I'm sure. The gospel of Jesus, which he's now really beginning to encounter for the first time, even though he's heard it for three years, it's a paradigm shift for him. And really, it's a paradigm shift for all of us as well. The gospel... The power that the gospel brings to us is born of grace, and humility, and love, and submission, and it's not weakness. It's simply the realization that God is God and we're not, and that he's sovereign and he's in control. The kingdom of God, the understanding of gentleness in the New Testament, in the kingdom of God, is strength under control. Gentleness is not a person who has absolutely no power and therefore they are required to be gentle. Gentleness in the New Testament is actually somebody with all the power but is willing to hold back and submit and be humble and have it under control. Let me ask this question. Was it weakness that took Jesus to the cross? Was he weak by going to the cross? Absolutely not. That took more strength than anyone could possibly have, but it was a strength that was under control, that was submitting to the mission and plan that God has for his people, the good news of salvation and redemption through the sacrifice of Jesus. Again, that's a really hard thing to grasp in a world that is so cruel and so harsh as ours. You know, our world today pretty much might makes right, isn't that that correct? That's the world that we live in today. Well, Jesus looks at Peter, and they're not close to each other. They're not a few feet away. There's there's some distance between them. So this act of them locking eyes and and Jesus gazing into Peter, this is a very specific thing that Jesus does in order to to have this intimate but very difficult moment with Peter. Peter. This is the most personal and intimate of all the crucifixion texts. It's the only one that records this happening. And it's a beautiful but at at times painful narrative that is developed here. And we know how painful it is because verse 62 says that Jesus went out and wept bitterly. That, that, That term wept bitterly communicates an agony that truly cannot be described. Some in this room have felt emotional pain so desperately strong that you cannot even articulate what's going on inside of you. You groan, you wail, you cry, and even that's not enough. It's a pain that really you believe the only way this pain can be ended is if you take your own life. And in fact, that's what Judas did. Judas the betrayer. He had this pain when he suddenly realized, I did betray the Messiah, his plan was different than mine, and I didn't like it, but now I'm beginning to see that his plan was the right plan. And Judas went out and took his own life. Peter didn't do that, thankfully. But he did weep, and he wept bitterly. But it's not just that Peter's in pain. There's more there to it. He's also weeping because he's confused. He's wrestling with this new paradigm. He hasn't quite got it yet, but he, but he knows a little bit more about what it isn't He he still doesn't understand what it means to have strength under control. He's wrestling with this power of submission, humility, and sacrifice. He realized that his attempt at might makes right, that was wrong. But now he's beginning to realize that totally withdrawing from the situation, that was wrong too. He's confused, he's disoriented. It's the disruption, disorientation, and confusion That all of us go through when we're in what's called a liminal space. That space where you're disoriented because things have changed. The script has changed. Your routine has changed. Your truth has changed. And it's it's no longer this. You used to go here and that worked and it doesn't. But but now you're trying to go over here and this. You think maybe this will work. But that doesn't work either. That's wrong too. And now is it here? Is it here? Where do I go? I don't know what to do. That's what Peter is dealing with. You ever had a new boss at work, anybody? Ever had a new boss at work? Are you all bosses? Is that what the deal is? Okay. You got a new boss. And within the first couple of days, you're realizing, oh, the old way is not the way we're going to do this anymore. You do it the old way, and, uh, that's not right. We're not doing it that way. Okay, so you go over here, and you try it this way, and then you get whacked for that. No, that's not right either. And now you're paralyzed. You're like, well, I don't know what to do then. I don't even know if I can close a sale. Is that okay? Can I close the sale? This is a new paradigm. I'm not sure what to do. Everything it's maddening. Everything is different. And this wasn't about a boss change for Peter. I'm not trying to belittle how important work is to us. That's an important thing, that your your boss changes and life is not the same. It's not the most important thing, though. This was the biggest thing in Peter's life. It was his rabbi, and his life was now on the line, and he's beginning to realize that. My life's on the line, and I don't even know what to do with that. I knew my life might be in danger, but now I don't even know how to react properly to that. This Jesus guy is filled with surprises. I'm not sure what to do. Think about us. And I'm not just saying this from observation, though I, could, I would say it's true from observation, but, but research for decades has, has, has confirmed this as well. Human beings are creatures of routine, of habit, and of scripts. We have a script for everything. Whatever it is, we have a script for how our life is going to turn out, and we have little micro-scripts, too. Like when we stop at Starbucks in the morning, will there be a parking place? Will the line be long? Will people be using credit cards instead of paying cash? I need to get out of here. Will that little container be filled with half and half, or am I going to have to take it up to the barista? We have scripts for everything. And when when our patterns, when our scripts, when our routines, when our truth, our truth, when that gets interrupted and disrupted, it's maddening, it's confusing, it's disorienting, and often it's paralyzing, and that's what's happening to Peter right now. So they go to trial, and during the trial, the people mock Jesus, and they scream to have him crucified, and Jesus stands before the Jewish ruling council. This is funny, not funny ha-ha to me, but funny ironic. The Jewish ruling council, before there was ever a trial, they had a verdict. They just needed a trial. To make it official, they had a verdict. They bring him in and they say, Would we bring this guy to you if, if he wasn't guilty of something? Of course not. Just pronounce him guilty. And so they bring him to the governor of Judea. That's Pilate. Well, Pilate talks to him and he doesn't think Jesus is guilty of anything. He thinks he's interested, uh, innocent, and he thinks these are trumped up charges. But he doesn't want to make a decision about it because, frankly, he's a politician, and he doesn't want to upset his constituency, and his constituency is primarily Jewish people who are mad at Jesus. And so what does he do? He kicks the can down the road. Pilate sends him down the road to Herod, the governor of Galilee. He says, here, you take care of this. And Herod receives him and gets mad. I don't want this guy. I don't, I don't want anything to do with this. This is too hot for me to handle. And he kicks that can right back down the road to Pilate. And Pilate looks at him, and, 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 and he's trying to figure out a way to let Jesus go and keep his constituency from getting mad. He, he's trying hard. He even brings him out and says, I, how can you possibly find guilt in this person? And they said, no crucify him let that murderer barabbas go he finally did what he had to do he had to he had to let him go and he sent jesus away to be executed that was friday jesus was crucified he's buried in the borrowed tomb joseph of arimathea's tomb and then everybody rested on the sabbath pretty much felt like it was all done darkness had won And and the Romans and the Jews, they were celebrating that this was over with, but then here's what happens. Chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, this is Sunday, Easter Sunday, at early dawn, they, who's the they? It's a bunch of women, the women who had been with the disciples, the women who had been with Jesus, part of his yoke, which was odd because women weren't part of a rabbi's yoke necessarily then. He was letting women into this. Well, they all went to the tomb taking spices that they had prepared. This was a traditional thing. They'd go, they'd get the, the soldiers or whatever men were around to move that, that, that stone away from the covering of the tomb, which archaeologists estimated probably weighed 3,000, 4,000 4, pounds. They needed some help to get, get it moved. And then they would go in and they would dress the body with these spices. It was a very traditional thing to do. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Nobody's around. This is odd. But when they went into the tomb, they did not find the body of Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, listen, you go into an empty tomb with a 4,000 rock guarding it, and it's rolled away, and there's no explanation, and the body's gone. You'd be perplexed, too. You'd be vexed, very vexed at this. This is astonishing, and they're standing around trying to figure it out. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, indicating they were probably angels. And as they were frightened, the women were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? I love that phraseology. Why would you seek the living among the dead? He's risen. He is alive. This is a place for dead people. He's out there ministering to people and revealing himself to people. Verse 6 He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven and to all the rest. So here are these women telling these men, the disciples, what had happened. The tomb is empty. He's, He's risen. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Listen to this now. But these words seemed to them, the apostles, the men, an idle tale, and they did not receive them. But Peter... Peter Peter rose and ran to the tomb stooping and looking in he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened it's amazing the women this is significant we need to talk about this why do people make such a big deal about the women being the first ones there because it was a big deal if you understand their culture and their context Women were considered second-class citizens. One rabbi in the first century even wrote that you cannot trust a woman to give testimony because they are too emotional. So a woman could never testify in court. You had to have three witnesses to confirm something had happened in, in court, but they all had to be men. Women were not trustworthy. It was women who came back and said, "'He's alive. He's been raised from the dead.'" And all of the apostles, except one of them, said, you're, "You're talking crazy, talk. You need to go away now. You're too emotional. Who's the one that goes? It's Peter. And it's interesting, because here's the impetuous one, the one who's always willing to be first, the one who acts without thinking. Up until this point, the one who was acting without thinking, Peter, was always driven by his power, his pride his truth, and his understanding of what it ought to be like. This is the first time when Peter responds, and it's not under his power. It's now the Holy Spirit revealing this truth once for all, finally, to Peter. And here you go. When Peter's life is ultimately, finally, disrupted by Jesus so that he gets the gospel, the good news of Jesus, he cannot but run as fast as he can to the truth. If your life has been disrupted by the good news, the gospel of Jesus, run. Don't walk to that truth. That is the response. That's the spirit changing your heart, transforming your mind, and calling you to the truth. Peter doesn't care. This is a new paradigm for him. He believes the women because he knows it's true. Peter began to remember also what he said about that. And he marveled and he believed and he's transformed. You know, there's a pre-resurrection Peter and there's a post-resurrection Peter. And they're different people. If you know Jesus, if you're a Christian, you're you're walking in faith with Jesus, there's a pre-resurrection you and a post-resurrection you. There's a pre-resurrection Frank. I walked 27 years pre-resurrection Frank. And there's a post-resurrection Frank now. And Jackie, my wife, who knew me as a pre-resurrection Frank and a post, she will tell you he's a different person. He's still a sinner, but it's clear that he's been transformed and he's running after the truth. And that's true of anybody who has come to know Jesus. The power of the resurrection, the power of submitting to the cross and sacrificing, that's genuine power. Peter's now a new creation with a new heart and a transformed mind. And his fear and and confusion are gone. True life and power. Peter realizes true life and power actually come from denying self. He's released that burden of his own pride, his own ego, his own personality necessarily. And now he is living by and guided by the Holy Spirit. And his fear is gone. He becomes one of the most courageous people in the New Testament. It's funny uh, Jesus's uh, most prolific commandment in the New Testament in the Gospels as you read through the Gospels 500 times Jesus says do not be afraid do not be afraid why would he say that because he knows the world we live in it's fallen and sinful and corrupt it's a might makes right world it's cruel and difficult and and, and We should be afraid. But he also says, Do not be afraid. In this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome this world. That was the last thing he said to the disciples that night before he was betrayed, before he prayed and then he went away with the Jewish ruling council to be crucified. The last thing he said was In this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome this world. It's going to be hard, but you don't have to be afraid. Peter has found his place. He's exited his liminality. And he understands the new kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus has brought, that he's going to restore, is one that's built on humility, sacrifice, and strength, but strength that comes from our Savior. And we know this because 40 days later when Peter goes out to preach his first sermon, his primary text in his sermon to proclaim the good news of the resurrected Jesus that our sin has been forgiven, his primary text to look back and cite is Psalm 16. This psalm is a psalm uh, of David. It's a prayer that David wrote, and it's called a miktam. Uh, The the Hebrew word miktam literally means that, that this is gold, that these words in this psalm, they are better than any economic currency you can lay your hands on. This is better than gold or silver, these words because they are true. David writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I run to you for protection and provision. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Apart from you, my life is completely unsustainable. As for the saints in the land, literally that word means holy ones in the land, the ones who believe in God, the ones who follow God, the ones who are a part of the people of God. They are the excellent ones, in whom is all of my delight. I love the body of believers. In New Testament language, that would be, I love the church and the body of Christ. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall be multiplied. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Those who run after false gods, idols, those things that aren't the one true god. They sacrifice to these gods. I'm not interested in those sacrifices at all. They're not the true sacrifices. I want nothing to do with the blood of those sacrifices and I will not put their names on my lips. The Lord has chosen, is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I like God's will. The lines are referencing God's will in your life and those Those lines, God's will, they fall in pleasant places. It's where wisdom in life comes, submitting yourself to God's will. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. How often in the New Testament do you read Paul or any of the other, Peter, any of the other New Testament writers in Jesus talking about our inheritance in the gospel that awaits us and that we can have right now and live in right now in the salvation of Christ? That's Psalm 16 language. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Life is hard, but I don't have anything to fear. I won't be shaken by it. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you do not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. In other words... Life in God, there is a resurrection. We're going to die physically, but we're going to get new bodies. We will not live in corruption for eternity. We will not go into Sheol. We will not be separated in eternity from God. We will not exist in hell. Make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus is resurrected he's raised from the dead and he spends some time appearing to people and saying yeah it's really me and he even eats some fish to prove that it's really him and he and he and he appears to all of the disciples and then he appears to 500 other people just to make sure that everybody gets this he was the guy dead they they, they ran a sword through him he was dead and he's alive now and after he's done all that he ascends and he leaves but before he leaves he says here's your job now church Here's your job, Peter. You're going to proclaim the gospel of me, the good news of forgiveness of sin at the cross and new life through the resurrection. You're going to go out and you're going to make disciples and you're going to baptize them and you're going to teach them everything that I taught. That's going to be your call. Do that as soon as the Holy Spirit comes. And 40 days later, the Holy Spirit came. It's called Pentecost. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, went out and he preached the first sermon of the new church And 3,000 people came to faith that day. And his primary text that he kept looking back at was Psalm 16. The resurrection is real. This is where you find life. This is where you find joy. This is where you find fulfillment. And not only Peter, but later on Paul, he gets converted in the book of Acts. And in Acts 13, he preaches. And guess what text he uses to preach out of? Psalm 16. The resurrection is real. That's where you find life, fulfillment, satisfaction, joy, power. That's where it's found. If you're here and you're a believer, you're a follower of Christ, this message is for you because we need to wake up every single day and preach that gospel to ourselves. We need it every day. We need to be reminded of it every day. Preach the good news to yourself every single day. If you're here... And you're not a believer, and maybe you don't even know why you're here, frankly. I mean, Easter's one of those kind of interesting holidays, you know? You're in town. You're with the family. You're not a believer. They are. They go to church. I got to do that. I don't want to be alone. I'll go to that goofy church. Okay. Here you go. Maybe you lost a bet. (laughs) All right, we're going to bet on that Michigan Loyola game, and if you lose, (laughs) you got to come to church with me tomorrow. God has appointed this time for you. You've heard the good news. You've heard what your heart has been looking for. It was what my heart was looking for for 27 years, and I couldn't find it, and I found it in Christ. This is life. Jesus is life. Come to Jesus every day. Come to Jesus now. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your son, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And we thank you for Peter. Because in Peter, we get to see ourselves. And we get to see how, how we are transformed by the reality of the cross and the resurrection. God, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. God, we would, we would see you, that our hearts would be, would be softened and melted and that our minds would be transformed. And that we would have the mind of your son. God, thank you for this. God, I pray you give us the courage to be able to live out our faith. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.